0: Hello and welcome to another edition of the BJ Psych Advances podcast. My name is Asta Sharma and I'm a trainee editor for BJ Psych Advances. And I'm very pleased to be joined today by Dr. Jessica Yekley, who's going to talk to us about her BJ Psych Advances article titled The Current Understanding of Narcissism and Narcissistic Personality Disorder. Uh, Dr. Yekley is a consultant psychiatrist in forensic psychotherapy, Director of the Portman Clinic and Director of Medical Education at the Tavistock and Portman NHS Foundation Trust here in London. She's also the editor of the Psychoanalytic Psychotherapy Journal and a fellow of the British Psychoanalytical Society. Thank you so much for joining us today. So now this article was published in 2018, but it continues to generate a lot of interest amongst our readers. In fact, I think it still remains our most read article for the journal online since it was published. So uh, we're really excited to be recording this podcast today with you. You talk in the paper about the origins of this concept in Greek mythology and the famous legend of Narcissus. Would you like to tell us a bit more about that?
1: Yes, so the legend of Narcissus in Greek mythology, from which the term Narcissism derives, has become one of the most prototypical myths of modern times. The most popular version of the story of Narcissus is by Ovid in his work Metamorphoses, in which Narcissus, a beautiful young man, is punished by Nemesis, the goddess of revenge, for rejecting the advances of Echo, who was in love with him. Echo was heartbroken and she lived out her life in desolation until only an echo of her voice remained. Nemesis, who is the goddess of revenge, punishes Narcissus by luring him to a pool of water where he fell in love with his reflection, not realising it was his own. However, the more he gazed, the more infatuated he became until he realised that his love could never be reciprocated and he was condemned to the same fate that he had inflicted upon Echo. And he remained fixated to his image in despair until his death, with Echo at his side, repeating his last words. And all that was left was a single flower, the Narcissist, or as is more commonly known, the Daffodil. So like the Greek tragedy of Oedipus, I think the story of Narcissists has been used as a means of describing key features of what we would now refer to as problematic narcissism, or in more extreme cases, narcissistic personality disorder, which is an excessive preoccupation with the self, the need for admiration, disregard for the needs of others, and difficulties in establishing reciprocal intimate relationships.
0: That's really interesting to know. And in terms of, I know you go into details about this in the paper as well, but how does one conceptualize narcissism from a psychoanalytic perspective?
1: Well, Havelock Ellis was actually the first person to use the narcissist myth to describe narcissism as a clinical entity. And he described this in people who were overly preoccupied with their own sexual body. So psychoanalysts developed his ideas on narcissism into a personality characteristic which was not exclusively sexual nor pathological, but a normal part of human development in most people. A psychoanalyst called Otto Rank in 1911 wrote the first psychoanalytic paper on narcissism, which was then followed by Freud's now classic text... Uh, called On Narcissism, an Introduction, which was published in 1914. And these psychoanalysts emphasised the function of narcissism as a defence against feelings of low self-worth and esteem, as well as conceptualising narcissism as a dimensional psychological state ranging from normal to pathological narcissism. And later psychoanalysts expanded on the idea of a narcissistic personality type, perhaps the most well-known example being Donald Winnicott's notions of true and false self, which he formulated in 1960. So then the American psychoanalysts Heinz Kohut and Otto Kernberg, their respective and and somewhat conflicting theories have arguably been the most influential in modern conceptualizations of narcissism and in shaping the construct of narcissistic personality disorder. So Kohut founded the psychoanalytic school of self-psychology which proposed a so-called deficit model of narcissism, where pathological narcissism originates in childhood as a result of the failure of parents to empathize with their child, and grandiose omnipotence emerges as a defense against fragmentation of the self. So in his view, narcissistic individuals are prone to experiencing emptiness and depression in response to narcissistic injury. By contrast, Kernberg's object relations approach emphasizes aggression and conflict in the psychodevelopment of narcissism, focusing on the patient's aggression towards and envy of others. In Kernberg's conflict model, early childhood experiences of cold, indifferent, or aggressive parental figures push the child to develop feelings of specialness as a retreat, which develops into a pathological grandiose self-structure. In pathologically narcissistic individuals, primitive defense mechanisms of idealization, denigration, and splitting predominate. The capacity for sadness, guilt, and mourning is lacking. And the main affects or emotions exhibited or felt are shame, envy, and aggression. These psychoanalytic theories were based on clinical work with narcissistic patients, but there have also been significant sociological theories and research regarding narcissism. So in the 1960s, the sociologist-philosopher Theodore Adano proposed that narcissism was a result of the collective ego's defensive response to industrialization and the changing economic and social structure of society. Subsequent writers, such as the journalist Tom Wolfe and the social critic Christopher Lash, documented the rise of the cult of the individual, self-expression, self-admiration and materialism, as key to economic prosperity, happiness and success, which was away from the traditional American societal values anchored within family and community.
0: So there's been this recent talk and controversy, uh, especially coming from the United States, about almost armchair critics or professionals diagnosing public figures some world leaders, with this personality disorder of sorts without a thorough analysis. Now, this almost reinforces, in the populist opinion, the singularity of narcissism as the only construct that's required to use labels like pathological narcissism or personality disorder. And it's certainly more complex than that. And you highlight that in your paper. And what struck me was your description of the two types of narcissism, the grandiose and the vulnerable version. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about that?
1: Yes, and this is very topical given the current uh, political climate. So several psychiatrists in the US uh, a couple of years ago suggested that the current president of the United States, Donald Trump, had a diagnosis of narcissistic personality disorder, which led to the American Psychiatric Association issuing a warning to its members to stop, inverted commas, psychoanalyzing him because it breached the organization's code of ethics by issuing such a diagnosis without conducting a full history and examination, or being granted proper authorization for such a statement. Narcissistic personality disorder may be commonly attributed to certain people in the public limelight who appear to exhibit signs of grandiosity. However, narcissistic personality disorder can't be diagnosed on the basis of a certain trait, and this exemplifies some of the pitfalls of diagnosing personality disorders in general. So the diagnostic criteria for NPD in the DSM-5 are focused on characteristics of grandiosity and entitlement rather than the more vulnerable manifestations of the disorder. It's now generally accepted that there are at least two subtypes of pathological narcissism which can be differentiated. One which is grandiose or overt narcissism and the other being vulnerable or covert narcissism. So people with the grandiose narcissism may appear arrogant, pretentious, dominant, self-assured, exhibitionist or aggressive, whereas people with vulnerable narcissism may present as overly sensitive, insecure, defense and anxious about an underlying sense of shame and inadequacy. And these two opposing presentations have been well described in the psychoanalytic literature, such as Herbert Rosenfeld, who is a psychoanalyst, his description of thick-skinned and thin-skinned narcissism, which also may coexist in the same person as alternating mental states. Thick-skinned narcissism refers to persons who display typical traits of narcissism, such as grandiosity, the need for admiration, etc., but seem impenetrable. They may boast about their accomplishments or criticise others, and it's often very difficult for the clinician to establish a meaningful rapport, and they are much less likely to seek treatment. In contrast, thin-skinned narcissism refers to persons who may initially seem grandiose but are extremely brittle and tend to become easily distressed or angry when their self-esteem is threatened. And what these theories show is how the narcissistic person's overt attitudes and behaviours may differ markedly from their inner subjective experience, where grandiosity may conceal an underlying sense of impotence, shame and inadequacy And conversely, manifest shyness and reticence may shield a secret sense of importance. Both individuals with grandiose and those with vulnerable narcissism share a preoccupation with satisfying their own needs at the expense of the consideration of others. Pathological narcissism is defined by fragility in self-regulation, self-esteem, and a sense of agency, accompanied by self-protective reactivity and emotional dysregulation. Grandiose and self-serving behaviours may be understood as enhancing an underlying depleted sense of self and are part of a self-regulatory spectrum of narcissistic personality functioning.
0: Thank you so much. That was really helpful. I'm curious to know, do you think the prevalence of this disorder has been increasing with time? Or is it just a case of perception because there's just almost this exponential explosion of interest in it and attention and it's crept into the social conscience more?
1: Yeah, yes, this is very interesting. So epidemiological studies measuring the prevalence of NPD in the general population are lacking. Community studies of the prevalence of personality disorders in general have been hindered by their small sample size and their confinement to specific geographical areas, such as individual cities, which has limited statistical analysis of the sociodemographics of NPD. So a systematic review of studies in 2010 reported the prevalence of NPD in adult non-clinical samples found seven studies using structured or semi-structured interviews to assess for personality disorder in which the mean prevalence of NPD was 1.2% and the range 0% to 6.2%. The most recent and comprehensive of these studies is the Wave 2 National Epidemiological Survey on Alcoholism and Related Conditions, which was a large nationally representative epidemiological survey of 34,093 civilians in the United States, carried out between 2004 and 2005, which assessed alcohol and drug use, psychiatric disorders, and the risk factors associated with and the consequences of alcohol and drug use by conducting face-to-face interviews. This survey showed an overall prevalence rate of NPD of 6.2%, with rates greater for men at 7.7% than women uh, at 4.8%. NPD was also significantly more common in black men and women and Hispanic women, younger adults, and people who were separated, divorced, widowed, or never married. High co-occurrence rates of substance use, mood, anxiety disorders, and other personality disorders were observed. The prevalence of MPD in the UK is not known, as it has not been specifically measured in the large-scale studies of the prevalence of mental disorders here, such as the British Psychiatric Morbidity Surveys. NPD has a relatively low prevalence rate in most clinical samples of patients with mental or personality disorders. Depression and dysthymia are the most commonly found comorbid mental illnesses in NPD. And symptoms of NPD, in particular grandiosity and inflated self esteem, may be seen in the manic phase of bipolar disorder. And it's not clear whether the comorbidity between the two disorders is a reflection of shared vulnerability or is just an overlap of diagnostic criteria. NPD is a relatively common comorbid disorder in drug and substance disorders and has also found to be comorbid with anxiety, depression, anorexia nervosa and post-traumatic stress disorder. The overall relatively low prevalence rates of NPD reported in samples from both clinical settings and the general population may in part be due to the narrow concept identified by the DSM-5 diagnosis which doesn't capture the more vulnerable aspects of pathological narcissism. And also a formal diagnosis of NPD is less frequently made by psychiatrists here in the UK than in the US. And the specific treatment modalities adapted for this disorder are generally less available here than in the US. And this may in part be due to the ICD-10, which is more commonly used here as a diagnostic system, in which NPD is not listed as a recognised specific personality disorder. Regarding narcissistic traits, some empirical studies have found that rates of narcissism in American college students from the 1980s to the current day have increased, which has been described as an epidemic of narcissism within American society. Cultural studies have suggested that the US is seen as a more narcissistic society, in which individualism, professional success, fame, and material wealth is celebrated in contrast to Eastern cultures within Asia and the Middle East, which promote collectivism and more shared parenting practices, and where self-reports of narcissistic traits have been shown to be lower than in Western countries such as the US. However, these studies should be interpreted with caution.
0: We've been speaking so far about the pathological version of narcissism and NPD. Are there situations where narcissism as a trait can be adaptive or even helpful for a person?
1: Yes, well, we all need to possess a certain degree of narcissism to be able to establish and maintain healthy relationships with others. So this should develop in childhood as a a result of internalizing our experience of good enough caregivers. In order to develop into healthy adults, we must be able to draw from the experience of having been cared for in order to be able to care for ourselves and others. As we develop in childhood, again with the experiencing of being cared for and being held in mind by our caregivers, we become increasingly aware that other people exist with their own needs, thoughts, and feelings. And then we can choose to relate to them, to others in a reciprocal way, part of which involves meeting the other person's needs. We start to invest in the other person meaning that we allow a sense of trust and care to develop mutually. But in many persons who suffer narcissistic-type difficulties, they often have experienced their needs not being completely met in infancy and early childhood. In childhood, age-appropriate narcissism is normal. In normal development, small children are able to feel proud of their accomplishments, showing off and enjoying being admired. Key developmental achievements, such as learning to walk, tying one's shoelaces, or drawing a picture, are all examples of events that tend to be encouraged and praised in healthy childhood. This contributes to a capacity to feel a sense of pride about one's achievements later in life. In adolescence, self-centeredness and a lack of sensitivity towards the feelings of others are also examples of age-appropriate narcissism. However, if these features persist, persist well beyond adolescence, an excessive tendency towards meeting one's own needs at the expense of those of others could be seen as a manifestation of problematic narcissism.
0: You mentioned a little bit earlier about um, ICD, and I was curious uh, to see what your opinion was about the current place of uh, NPD in clinical nosology, because it's still not recognized by ICD while well, it's, it's been there in DSM since many versions now.
1: Yes, so well, a, a categorical diagnosis of MB, NPD has actually existed in the DSM since the third edition uh, published in 1980. But there have been inconsistencies, as I mentioned, in the conceptualization of narcissism, including differences in describing its nature, i.e. is it normal or pathological, its presentation, i.e. grandiosity or vulnerability, In its expression, is it overt or is it covert? And structure, you know, is it a category, a dimension or a prototype? And all these inconsistencies have been reflected in the limited descriptions of these areas in the DSM-IV definition of NPD, which focus more on the grandiose manifestations rather than the vulnerable ones. There was an attempt at ameliorating these shortcomings in a new model of personality disorder as a categorical dimensional hybrid, which was intended to become the official approach to the diagnosis of all personality pathology and disorders in DSM-5, which aimed to increase the validity of mental disorder diagnoses by incorporating dimensional assessment, which is particularly relevant to NPD, given its place within a dimensional spectrum of severity of narcissism from normal to pathological. However, disagreements within the personality disorder research community as well as within the American Psychiatric Association resulted in this new model of personality disorder not being adopted by DSM-5. So the diagnostic criteria for NPD in DSM-5 remain identical to those in DSM-4, although this new model has been placed in Section 3 of the manual called emerging measures and models as an area for future study but npd doesn't exist at all as a specific personality disorder in icd-10 and is therefore much less frequently diagnosed in the uk than in the us where the dsm is the most widely used um, diagnostic classification system npd will also not feature in icd-11 which will offer the most radical change in the classification history of personality disorders. So in ICD-11, a dimensional structure will replace categorical description for all personality disorders, which is argued to be consistent with the empirical evidence. And the clinical diagnosis of personality disorders will involve two steps, the first being assigning one of five levels of severity... And the second being assigning up to six prominent domain traits, uh, which are negative affectivity, detachment, antisocial, borderline, disinhibition, and anancastian. And people with a DSM-5 diagnosis of NPD may actually have traits in several of these ICD-11 domains. Mm -hmm. So although NPD is one of the less common personality disorders found in the community and clinical samples... My personal opinion is that retaining a discrete diagnosis of NPD is clinically useful to help identify problematic narcissistic traits in patients with personality difficulties.
0: And finally, from your experience, um, what have been the challenges of managing people with NPD in clinical settings?
1: Yes, well, this is important because there are quite a few challenges Regarding treatment in general, there's no evidence that any specific psychopharmacological treatment is affected for NPD, although comorbid mental illnesses such as anxiety, depression or bipolar disorder should be treated as appropriate in their own right. But patients with NPD may report being particularly sensitive to the side effects of medication, particularly those that affect their sexual function or intellectual capacity, And they also may resent the idea that they might be dependent on pharmacological interventions, which may then reduce their compliance with treatment. But the mainstay of treatment of patients with NPD is psychological therapy. And psychotherapeutic treatments of NPD have been developed from within two main traditions, the psychoanalytic, psychodynamic approaches and cognitive behavioral approaches. And these two different approaches differ by be, being based on distinct theoretical models, paradigms, and frameworks, but they also share certain techniques and therapeutic interventions. And just to tell you a bit about them, the most prominent two psychodynamic therapies that have emerged are transference-focused psychotherapy, or TFP, which was developed by Otto Kernberg, who I mentioned earlier, and his collaborators in the United States, and mentalize. Mentalization-based therapy, or MBT, which was developed by Anthony Bateman and Peter Fonagy in the UK. And from the CBT framework, the most prominent psychological therapies developed to be used for patients with MPD are schema-focused therapy, or SFT, which was originally developed in, by Jeffrey Young and his colleagues in the Netherlands, and dialectical behavior therapy, DBT, developed by Marsha Linehan in the US. Now it's interesting that all of the aforementioned therapies were originally developed and evidenced in randomized controlled trials for the treatment of borderline personality disorder, not NPD uh, originally. And they've been subsequently adapted for NBT but to date there haven't been any RCTs specifically carried out on patients with NPT. Also there is increasing support for a more integrated approach to the treatment of personality disorders including NPD with the recognition that different modalities and techniques can be used synergistically and in a stepwise fashion for the different presentations and developmental stages of NPD. But regardless of therapeutic modality, common strategies and techniques are found to be useful in the treatment of NPD, such as the necessity of building a positive therapeutic alliance. People with NPD present many challenges. Those that present to primary care or secondary mental health services may present with a variety of complaints, although the diagnosis of NPD is often not recognized. But a common theme is that their experience of life and in particular their relationships does not live up to their elevated standards and expectations. They may also present in crisis, describing difficulties and complaints from family, friends, or employers, or legal sanctions that they don't accept. Or they may be referred to mental health services due to comorbid mental conditions such as depression, or suicidality. Other manifest difficulties include social isolation, sexual dysfunction, irritability and aggression, and an increasing reliance on drugs and or alcohol to elevate mood. They may complain of feelings of emptiness, dysphoria and despair, or feelings of shame, humiliation and worthlessness, which may predominate particularly in relation to events such as the breakup of a relationship or loss of their employment. They often have little insight into the fact that their difficulties might be due to problematic personality traits and instead externalize their problems onto others. A sense of victimhood or entitlement is common with the patient blaming others for treating them badly or criticizing them for faults that they see in other people but deny in themselves. And if the diagnosis is made, it's often rejected as this challenges their sense of specialness or may accentuate feelings of low self-worth, shame, and humiliation. People with NPD are often difficult to engage in treatment, which underscores the importance of gradually building a therapeutic alliance with mutually agreed goals within a clearly outlined treatment frame in the initial stages of any treatment offered. They may seek therapy after several failed previous treatments, and premature termination or sudden dropout is common. If the therapeutic process can be initiated, frequent ruptures within the therapeutic relationship should be anticipated, which are often precipitated by the patient feeling criticised or unfairly treated by the clinician. The patient may also resent the perceived power or expertise of the clinician and reject the treatment offered to them. On the other hand, the narcissistic patient may wish to please the therapist and be their favourite patient, and are very skilled at learning what is expected from them in therapy and may report improvement without evidence of any real therapeutic change. Other difficulties include sensitivity to developmental changes, such as marriage, childbirth, or ageing, and sudden life events that can disrupt the treatment alliance. They also may have poor tolerance of affects, particularly feelings of shame, humiliation, and vulnerability. They may present with or develop suicidal ideation and behavior. And they may also exhibit aggressive antisocial or psychopathic features, which are associated with a poorer prognosis. Feelings of shame and humiliation, as I've mentioned, um, which may arise in relation to perceived slights and lack of respect from others, are are often a central conflict for people with MPD. and, And this may cause particular challenges within the therapeutic relationship. The offer of therapeutic help in itself may precipitate feelings of shame due to them equating weakness and vulnerability with being a patient. Such feelings of vulnerability may be experienced as intolerable and are defended against by defense mechanisms of projection, grandiosity and omnipotence within the relationship between the patient and the therapist so that the therapist is the one who feels shameful and inadequate. And And these, what we would call counter-transferential responses in the therapist may be understood psychoanalytically as an unconscious communication from the patient to the therapist of his problem in receiving and using help via the process of projective identification in which the therapist is made to feel the feelings that the patient disowns so these treatment challenges highlight the complex counter-transference responses that may be provoked in clinicians such as frustration anger or therapeutic nihilism or on the contrary feelings of specialness and therapeutic expertise and this highlights the importance of regular clinical supervision, reflective practice, case discussion groups, or or Barlink groups, regardless of the treatment modality, in which the clinician's feelings can be safely explored to gain insight into the patient's psychopathology and interpersonal difficulties and the way they impact on the therapeutic relationship. It should be recognized, however, that feelings of shame and resentment in therapists and other professionals in contact with narcissistic patients may make it particularly difficult for them to seek or effectively use supervision with the risk that unhelpful or even punitive countertransference responses from clinicians, for example refusing access to treatment, may go unchecked.
0: Thank you so much for your enlightening description about a clearly complex topic. That concludes today's podcast. Thank you very much for joining me. Until next time, goodbye.
1: Thank you for listening to this BJ Psych Advances podcast. For the latest updates, follow us on Twitter at the BJ Psych. To listen to more podcasts from the BJ Psych Journal portfolio, visit us on SoundCloud or search for us online.